The words of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. That which the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten, and that which the locust hath left, hath the canker worm eaten, and that which the canker worm hath left, the caterpillar eaten. Awake, ye drunkards, and weep, and howl, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation is come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste, and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare, and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Lament, like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. The field is wasted. The land mourneth. For the corn is wasted. wasted. The new wine is dried up. The oil languisheth. Be ashamed, O ye husbandmen. Howl, O ye vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up, and the fig tree languisheth, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. Even all the trees of the field are withered, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests. Howl, ye ministers of the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God. For the meat offering and the drink offering is withheld from the house of your God. Sanctify ye a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God. And cry unto the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Is not the meat cut off before your eyes? Yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seed is rotten under the clods. The garners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down. For the corn is withered. How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. O Lord, to thee will I cry. For the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. And the flame hath burnt all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field cry also unto thee. For the rivers of waters are dried up. And the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the earth tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess. A day of clouds and of thick Darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is of the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run. 
Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap, like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained, all faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men, they shall climb the wall like men of war, and they shall march every one on his ways, and they shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another, they shall walk every one in his path, and when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city, they shall run up upon the wall, they shall climb up upon the houses, they shall enter in at the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. The day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? So unless you, are, unless you are new, a new Christian, you'll probably be aware Joel is a prophet. You may also be aware that he is in that classification called the minor prophets, which is very unfair, I think, to, the, to, to those people. I don't imagine Joel would, would uh, complain much about that. But he's one of the minor prophets, a prophet being someone who is given a message by God, in a very unique way, to, to hear the voice of God and for it to be accompanied with an absolute conviction that this is a message from heaven and needs to be relayed to the people. The dates that Joel was around are uh, not known, and you may wonder what is the uh, what is the point? Why is he telling us about dates? Well, if we know the date that the prophet exercised his ministry. We can place them on a timeline and we can see that the, we can look at the events of that era, of that time, and we can uh, make more sense. Uh, the Lord has chosen not to reveal that to us and we don't need this. There's plenty in this book of Joel, even, uh, for us that we can learn from about the past and about maybe today. The... Uh, when we, have, um, when we have rhymes, uh, poems in another language and we try to take those rhythms and things across to a new language, it very often doesn't work very well. It's very, it sounds very awkward. This, the poetry in, in, in this uh, book of Joel is a more, uh, a more common uh, type of poetry within, within Hebrew. It's uh, based on what they call uh, parallelisms or parallels, and it's uh, it, it, it's good. It means that that we can we can read it in our own language, and it will still maintain some of that that force of expression. Well, where it began this uh, book, it, you you'll see that it talks about uh, the elders, you know, the old men, and so it. 
brings this to their attention first. They've been around. They've seen a lot in their lives and in their walk with God. And yet Joel wants them to understand that they are about to see something the likes of which has never seen, been seen before. This is what's called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord here is nothing less than an invasion of locusts. Now these locusts are not to be understood metaphorically. These are literal locusts. It was an actual plague. I'll be, I'll be with you for three out of the uh, four uh, Thursday evenings this month. And so I've uh, divided the book of Joel into three uh, chunks that seem logical to me. And so this evening, Joel part one, it's about rebuke. It's about the rebuke of God. About the, the rebuke that came through the lips of Joel and with all these warnings from, from above. And so the first thing we'll consider is this locust army. I'm going to share some facts about locusts, not just for your interest, but so you understand just what a significant uh, threat the locust plague was. Locusts are grasshoppers, essentially. Uh, which have uh, gone into a sort of different phase, <coughs> a migratory phase. And so they, they start to go on the move and you get these swarms coming together. And sometimes several swarms come together into one super swarm. And so it might be once every 10 years or once every 17 years. Uh, but when these big ones come, they can stretch for hundreds of square miles and they can blacken that really can blacken the sky. It's been said that if one female locust lays her eggs in, say, June, within just a few months, she will have perhaps 20 million descendants. So if any of you have grandchildren, and if any of you have great-grandchildren, the locust isn't impressed because they have great, great, great grandchildren in the tens of millions just in a few short months. Phenomenal uh, creatures, really. In the 19th century, in a, they, they, they discovered, I think it was in the Middle East, they discovered a, a mass of eggs that had been laid by a swarm of locusts. And obviously they wanted to destroy the eggs before they hatched. And they were removing it and... It's estimated there, were over, there was over 1,000 tons of eggs. That's hard to picture. Think of a 1,000 Land Rovers, and, and that's the weight of, of insect eggs. This is, this, these are the numbers. So if you imagine, I mean, can you picture a swarm the size of, you know, whales? The, the size of whales. A swarm that big. These exist. And in those extreme circumstances where you get super, super storms, those times in history that we're aware of, you can get some. There was one in America which was about 20 times bigger than whales. 
So there you go. I, I can't even picture that. 20 times bigger than Wales, a swarm. Went across America and just devastated them. So I'm saying this so that you understand how uh, destructive these things are. You heard that they had teeth. That's not an exaggeration. They have little teeth and they strip things. They'll strip anything, any vegetation at all. In verse uh, 4, you will, you will have you've seen me read about the palmer worm. Uh, then when he's finished, the locust comes to get the leftovers. And his leftovers are eaten by the canker worm. And there's a few scraps left. And the caterpillar comes and eats it. Now, there's, there's four things mentioned there. So, you know, it could be, it's not easy to know what they were originally, but they could be four different species, they could be four stages in the life of the locust. But whatever, the, whatever they refer to, those, those, those names, if you have an interest in numbers in scripture, you might be aware that the number four is often used for completeness. And so it is a complete destruction carried out by this army of God. And uh, the picture is clear. There's lots and lots and lots of locusts. Just like with the uh, Exodus. You remember uh, how God used an army of locusts against Pharaoh. So this is about judgment. This is judgment. And it's clear from the scriptures we read that God wants us to understand that this is his army. He calls it my army. A people I have raised up. A nation, he calls them. They march, and they march on the floor sometimes, you know, they march on the floor, they, they fly in their tens of trillions, and they blacken the sky and make a, a noise as well, a dreadful noise. And we're meant to, meant to see here the thoroughness of it, the thoroughness of the thing. When they come in, everything, everything is destroyed. They even get into people's homes, even in people's homes, even in people's bedrooms. And so it would appear that the judgment of God is inescapable. The judgment of God cannot be avoided. Once God determines to judge, that no one can escape that. You will notice as well that creation itself suffered with this, uh, this calamity in verse um, 18. How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed. Verse 20, the beasts of the field cry also unto thee because they water. There are food shortages, food and drink shortages in verse uh, 5 of chapter 1. The new wine's cut off from your mouth. Verse 12, the vine is dried up, the fig tree languishes. All the trees, all the trees are withered, it says. And so God is, God is ordering his creation, instructing it to bring about this devastation of everything. Every last thing which might bring joy into someone's life. 
whether it be the drink, uh, drink or some food. And perhaps to add all that, we have, in verse 9, we have this reference to religious worship. And so, in verse 9 of chapter 1, the meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. And verse 13, the meat offering and the drink offering is withheld from the house of your God. This just makes everything far worse. This judgment of God involved the prevention of people worshipping God. That, that might make no sense. And yet, this is how God sometimes works. If God was to judge um, our nation, for example, I don't know whether he works in that way, but if he chose to, then it could be that one of the ways is to cause a famine of his own word. A famine of his own word. Well, our locust army then. And I want to mention this term, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The references here are in uh, verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Okay, and then in chapter 2, the, verse, the first verse says it, uses that phrase, and verse 11. The day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Verse 11 says, and who can abide it? Well, You may be tempted to think that the day of the Lord must have some reference to the return of Christ, for example. You might be tempted to think that, that this is not talking about an immediate event, but it is looking into the future, to the return of Christ. But we can see an honest reading of that text will show us clearly that this day of the Lord was the locust invasion of that day. It turns out that there's not just one day of the Lord. A day of the Lord just refers to a visitation by God, usually in judgment. Now, that has a bearing when we look to the New Testament. So if you come across the, the term day of the Lord, or you come across some apocalyptic language in the New Testament, I would uh, encourage you not to jump to any conclusions about what it means. Ezekiel uh, used this term, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord, he used that to describe something which we, we know to be uh, a, a judgment on Egypt in his day. In the New Testament, if you look at the Dramatic language of Matthew 24, often called the Little Apocalypse. Well, you will see there that there are, uh, there are references there which must refer to the year AD 70 and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. God visits in different ways. He can visit in judgment 
But there's no doubt, and I am, I am uh, with you all on this, there is no doubt that there is one particular end time day of the Lord. One above all others. One which all the others were shadows of and pointers to. So we have this end time one which coincides with the return of Christ. The day of the Lord. The judgment. When, uh, when I was reading this uh, cycle that we see in Joel. Which is uh, warnings from God. Uh, exhortations to repent. And then thereafter promises of restoration. And it reminded me of the whole salvation story of God throughout history. That whole story of salvation. Because I spotted, as you will no doubt have spotted in there, a reference to Eden. And it says that... Um, yeah, it says that the place was likened to Eden. So you can imagine this wonderful, wonderfully fertile part of the world looking something like a, a fertile a garden, perhaps. Like Eden itself. The locust swarm comes through, does its work, and passes by. And what remains is, is desolation. What remains looks like a post-apocalyptic landscape. Devastation. And that reference to Eden reminded me of this, this circle of God's where he begins his creation with an Eden and ends it with something similar. We have, think back to Eden, we had this this wonderfully beautiful place. The world was created by God. It was already beautiful. And God said, I'm going to let you uh, add to what I've done. Add to it. You're going to garden for me. And you're going to make this place beautiful. And as long as my influence continues, that beauty will spread with the human race. And the whole planet will be a global garden of Eden. However, of course, people... Uh, the, our first parents sinned, chose to sin rather than keep all those blessings. And they forsook the presence of God. They forsook a beautiful place, an easy life, and sin entered the world. There too, uh, creation suffered. After all, the flora and the fauna again suffered because of man's sin. The wonderful garden now overgrown with weeds. Animals turning on each other and killing each other. Everything was affected as here. And so there were warnings sent by God through the prophets, for example. Warnings of judgment to come for sinful people. And then the most important point in history arrived when God revealed the gospel in all its gloriousness through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not merely written on the pages of a book. But the word himself becoming flesh and living among us. And the human race got to see the saviour of the world dying 
in front of them on a cross. And so we had the gospel. And there's this wonderful message which came in its wake, which is that sinful people who repent can, can, uh, can receive forgiveness of sins, can be delivered. Repentance leads to deliverance. And as far as I'm aware, everyone in this room tonight has received such forgiveness of God and deliverance. We live in a state of having been delivered. And yet there is more. Yet there is more to come. There is a redemption of the body. And so on that last day, we will rise from the dead. And as I understand it, we shall live in a new type of Eden. A new type of Eden. Superior even to the original one. So the day of the Lord, it's a dreadful thing when Jesus comes and judges mankind. Yet for us who believe, us who believe, us who re we have repented of our sins, we get, to, we get to go through this judgment and come out innocent and live in God's paradise. So let's just think then about this repentance that, that is needed then. This repentance that is needed. When we think of repentance, we might think of uh, sinful people out there having to repent because they are unrepentant sinners. But friends, the, the word of God is clear that um, judgment begins in the house of God. Judgment begins in the house of God. And you, friends... You and all the other Christians, you are the house of God. Judgment starts there. In the church. And um, whether today is worse than previous generations, I cannot tell. It's, it's too difficult to, to, to assess, I think. But every generation of believers has experienced some sort of spiritual declension. And today... Today is no exception for all the advances in our society in almost every area. Yet, we have a sin-filled world and we have, for the most part, a complacent Christianity. Complacent, lazy, not fearing God. And I believe that the, the church... The church somehow thinks it's immune from the judgments of God. Israel was the Lord's people. Not in the same sense as God's elect, if you like. But they were at that time a covenant people. One who God had entered into an agreement with. They were his, his special people. And look what he did to them. Look what he did. God's word seems to say that Christians have no right to assume they are immune from God's judgments. Not eternal judgment, because I believe we are, once we are saved, then we, we cannot be unsaved. But certainly judgments now, 
And you may feel more comfortable calling these things uh, chastening. It matters not a great deal. We know that whatever we call them, for us, they are sent by God with a motivation of love. But certainly God sends trouble to us. Do we need to repent? That's the question. Do we today need to repent? I'm sure you don't. I'm sure none of you need to repent. But if there was someone here who was, for example, slack in their private devotions, their prayer life and so on, perhaps they need to repent. And if there was anyone here who turned up on Sunday and they were lukewarm, lukewarm in their corporate worship, people who've dragged themselves here on Sunday just so people don't think they are unspiritual. Perhaps they need to repent. Maybe there's someone, maybe there's someone who is lacking in love, lacking in love to the people who hate us, the, the, uh, the people of this world, the ecumenists, papists, whoever it might be. Do we, do we have a lack of love for those people? If so, we, we need to repent of that. Perhaps some people take secondary issues in the church and elevate them above the ones that the Lord has said are most important then that person would need to repent. So maybe, just maybe, maybe we all need to repent. Maybe we've all got things to repent of. Maybe we're insensitive. As God sends troubles into our life, we are insensitive to those promptings. Maybe we are. If someone is in that position where they need to repent, then Joel gives, gives a strong message to such people when he says, he tells them to wake up. Wake up, he says, verse 5. Wake up, shake yourself out of your spiritual deadness. Perhaps Joel would call them a kind of drunkard, a kind of drunkard, an indulgent, self, selfish person perhaps. Joel tells these people they need to weep, they need to cry. The person who needs to repent, they, they really need to cry out to God that he would expose in their hearts you know, their lack of commitment, their, their, their sin. Pray that God would give them a godly sorrow, a proper godly sorrow. Because as you know, it's an irony. But the way to joy is via tears, inward or outward. The way to joy is through a veil of tears. Howl, Joel says, howl. Howl. Normally, uh, the, the, the drunkard is, is wallowing in the pleasures of sin. But when joy is cut off, they're to wail. When judgment comes, they are to wail to God in repentance. 
Now, when trouble comes your way, as it has, as it will, you will often or usually have no way of knowing for certain what the cause is. Do we say that Job was uh, Job suffered because of all his sin? It was the opposite. Job suffered because he was so good and was held up an example of righteous behaviour. Job still got on his knees in contrition to God because he had things to learn. So when trouble comes our way, we may not know whether it's a particular sin of ours that's brought this, brought this upon us. But in any case, let's just go anyway to God. Let's just go anyway with the repentant spirit to God afresh and beg him to reveal what this thing is he wants us to learn. Sometimes repentance is not uh, just individual. Sometimes it's congregation-wide. Think about the church at Corinth. The whole congregation there needed to repent collectively. And it may just be, it doesn't happen a lot, but it may just be that God will all of a sudden one day reveal to an entire congregation their sin and by his spirit reveal their sin to them. This, friends, is the, this is the catalyst for revival. Revival doesn't come to uh, people who are sitting uh, in, the, in ease every, every Sunday. Revival comes to people who've been awakened to their sin. Revival's about us, not them. Now, when, uh, when such a time such a time comes when a, a, there's a corporate, congregation-wide repentance needed, then the leaders in the church have a special role. The leaders in the church have a duty then to direct it and manage it and just lead the way. The elders, the pastors especially, that's, that's part of their duty. And so for the, for the pastors... And other leaders, they, they, need to, they need to listen to this more than anyone. So, friends, I, I should preach this in the mirror when I go home because that honour that is, that is given to, to God's uh, under-shepherds carries with it an extra accountability. An extra accountability before God and it's a solemn thing to, to think on Joel's words are primarily to those who lead or rule or teach those in leadership and so they have to be sensitive to the word of God above above everyone it's difficult to count, but I tried to count the number of commands which were sent to the way of God's priests and ministers in this passage. And there are maybe seven or eight or more commands to them, more than to anyone else that was addressed. 
So their very calling requires them to lead the way. And so if repentance is needed in the congregation, it is the leaders that are to lead the way. And they have a responsibility before God to do that. But the people, the people are expected to repent themselves. The people in verse 14 are addressed. It's the individuals as well, not just leaders. Everyone, everyone in every congregation has a deep responsibility to listen to God's word. Really listen to it. When we think about deliverance, deliverance afforded to a repentant uh, Christian, we need to think when we are when we are delivered from some trouble. I can t- tell you one uh, trap we, we might fall into. I'll give you an example. I contract some illness. I get some virus, some flu virus or coronavirus, and uh, I'm a bit ill. And then I think, oh, well, oh, it's starting to wear off now. And then I get better and better. If I come to believe that that thing, that thing I had, that affliction, merely ran its course, it ran its course and came to an end naturally, but by itself. I'm effectively saying that it was it that it arrived by itself. That it that it came into my life as a matter of chance. And if we do that, we, we fail to understand that these things are sent by God. Now you might think, well, these things are common to man. We watch them. Everyone suffers from these things. And they get their deliverance at the end of it. Why on earth would that make it less likely that God is sovereign in those things? We're to believe the word of God and it says that the Lord sends these things into our lives. The Lord sends them. God himself even says through the prophets, he says, Don't ever think that evil comes into a city and the Lord hasn't done it. The Lord says, Don't ever think evil comes your way and I haven't done it. Because I have. And regardless of the theological uh, confusion that might cause that God is the one who sends evil. That is in the scriptures. So we need to understand that when we receive good, as Job said, shall we not also suffer at his hand for a season? This is the way God works. And if we start to think the things in life, the mind things, the colds and the flus and the, the, the broken collarbone, ribs, our poor brother. If we ever think that those things are just, are not from God, how on earth are we going to learn anything at all? How can we learn if we don't understand they are from God? I share uh, with people, I share answers to prayer. And good news, I like to share answers to prayer. It's encouraging to the brethren. The beginning of our reading says that these uh, judgments of God, this particular major day of the Lord level judgment, is to be told to their children. 
and the grandchildren and the rest of the family. <laughs> so we should be prepared to testify to God's wisdom that he sent us an affliction and he brought us out of it. And we should testify that to our family and our friends. Testify to God's deliverance. All people should spread this important message. The message of God's uh, hatred of sin and his love of rescuing us out of that very judgment that he has sent. That message goes way past Job's day. It comes into our day. It's important to us and it will be important over future generations. So friends, the believer's judgment or chastening, if you prefer that, is very real. When we suffer loss, we are to see the hand of the Lord in that loss. We need to understand that in our suffering, it may be that God is intending to draw us closer to himself with a greater reliance on him. So friends, when, when you find sickness coming into your life, sickness upon sickness, and when you think you have all the things you need in this world, but you cannot find joy in those things as you once did, then consider, consider that the Lord might be trying to teach you something. I would just say to you, as I'd say to myself tonight, I would say, learn the lesson of Joel. Be sensitive to the promptings of the Lord, because he does all these things, because he loves you intensely. Amen. Amen.